Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, interest rates, I was just looking up, I have some problems, but I apparently didn't turn on the, make them visible to you, just a practice problem for <coughs> such things as finding a payment, <coughs> excuse me, future value, present value, finding a payment, finding effective rate and all of that. So I have to figure out how I've, turn on the visibility of that little problem sheet so you can get some practice. And as I said, you can use your calculator, you can use um, your uh, Excel to do that on the quiz. And there will be some other questions, obviously, on the quiz as well. But that is on Wednesday, and so prepare for that as you wish. As far as today goes, today is interest rates, and this is Largely, uh, um, remember memorization, can it, get it down in your notes. There are a few math calculations, nothing monstrous, mostly just additions and subtractions and things like that. But before we do that, a quick look at the numbers. And uh, it, the market is just mixed today. We would say it's a mixed market. It's kind of directionless. Nothing is going really fast in either directions, although you'll see the Dow seems to be okay. It's up about 0.4%, uh, but the S&P and the NASDAQ got slammed earlier, and now they're groveling their way back. They'll probably make it to positive territory. The thing, though, is that it is pretty clear that the Federal Reserve is going to keep interest rate interest rate pressure on the upside, and that's one of the things we'll talk about today, is that interest rate environment and how those interest rates are affected by Federal Reserve policy as well as other factors. And I'll go into some of the details of the story of interest rates over the last, oh, I don't know, about 50, uh, 40, uh, about 75 years. Uh, that'll be a summary of it, and then I'll get into more detail later in the semester. But uh, for now, though, as you can see, nothing is really spectacular. Crude is still down there, but the thing that I can't figure out is gas prices are still higher than they probably would be expected with crude this low. And again, what I hear is that it's just that a lot of the oil is right now being cranked out to get jet fuel because there's such a supply shortage in of aviation uh, fuels, avgas as they sometimes call it. And also diesel is still on the uh, slight side as far as supply goes. So we have to wait until those uh, pipes are filled before we can start to see gasoline cranking out and price going down. Nothing at all spectacular about gold. Gold just looks pathetic, and silver isn't anywhere uh, to write home about, although it is up some. Uh, the 10-year bond. The yield is down, which means that the price is up. The price would be up if there is demand for those bonds. Investors are buying bonds. It's nothing spectacular, obviously, but at the same time, it's uh, the prices are up on bonds. I will, uh, just to telegraph a punch, I'll ask you something about this on the quiz. So make sure that you understand that inverse relationship between yield and price and what drives it in one direction or the other. But going on, I haven't even looked at the international markets. I mean, they are just miserable. There's nothing... Tokyo finished today. It started down, and then it crawled back up, and then it just kind of flopped around there, barely uh, above where it started the day. So, I mean, there's nothing going on in Tokyo, 
And if you look over here at London, London's probably going to finish the day without anything spectacular, up a, a little bit, a fraction of a percent, nothing really going on. It's quiet right now. And I, there's sort of a last uh, directionless. Let me see something real quick here. Um, S&P 500. I'm going to look at the volume here on, uh, yeah, the volume is pretty weak today. We're not finished with the day yet, obviously. There's a couple hours left, but it's still pretty weak. We're, after, we're past the midday, and the S&P 500 is just uh, half of what it is on a typical day. You see this volume today is 2.38 billion shares of S&P stocks have traded on a typical day. 4.1 billion would have trade will will trade so it's a quiet day and that's part of why the market's just sort of bobbling along here no one seems to uh well not no one but the investors are keeping their big money on the sidelines to wait and see what happens next it's really quiet on the street and it there's no big numbers coming out for the time being you know, so we can't really say much about what's going on. A couple of uh, stock quotes, just real, very quickly. Um, I don't know. I don't want. Uh, oh, someone brought up AMC, so I'll show you AMC. Uh, oh, that's a rough. That's rough. It's been. It's been not really anything. Uh, 0.2% down for the day. Nothing to write home about. Now, as you can see. Uh, the beta, this is an extraordinarily risky stock, 2.06. It's more or less a penny stock, and those tend to be pretty darn risky. AMC is in a difficult position. Competitive environment for AMC is just rough as heck because of the other heavy theater chains like Marcus out there. But... Uh, but it has no P.E. ratio, and that's because earnings per share is negative. This company is losing money, $2.05 per share, and it's just miserable. And the earnings date is coming up, so we're going to see. That's kind of interesting because the earnings right now, earnings are coming out. Now, as you can see, it's kind of a mixed bag. In... Uh, the quarter four of 2021, they hit their earnings estimate. And then the next quarter, they were a little below what they had thought that they would be. And then they, the next quarter, a little more below. But then in the last quarter before this one, their earnings were above what they had, uh, what they had estimated them to be. Now, they're estimating them to be higher this time. We'll see. It's interesting because right now, I mean, it did do well in the last quarter compared to what it said it was going to do, but you don't see that doing anything about trading right now. It's just, everyone's just kind of sitting back and waiting. The earnings are just a week away. We'll see. It almost would be worth, I mean, if you're, if you're crazy throwing $100 into it just in case there's a pop. I haven't heard any rumors about AMC, and you're supposed to buy on the rumors, sell on the news and all that, but there aren't any rumors right now. But AMC is still in the game. If you would look at it over the last five years, that was that Reddit thing. But at, since then, you notice that the tops have been declining, but they've broken the neckline down on the declining tops. And the bottoms were declining, but they're well away from that decline, the neckline on the troughs. So there's some reason, I mean, a technician, one of those technical analysts would say, you've got them, they've broken the neckline down on the tops, and they have, are well exceeding that neckline on the, on the troughs. Who knows? I mean, this is kind of the art of investing is this kind of stuff. It's not the science at all. But this is what some people do, is they look at these kinds of charts like this and say, well, I see declining tops, but they've broken that decline, so let's see what's going to happen next. Uh, one more, just for laughs, going back to Tesla. 
God. Still overvalued. Beta is still way up there. And EPS is positive, but remember, earnings is an accounting concept, and what we care about is free cash flow. But they don't pay a dividend, so, and at least Yahoo is projecting that the stock price is going to drop. You notice that on, well, let's look at the year to date. They've been climbing. You see this right here, these rising tops? Well, let's look at the one year. <laughs> You notice that they broke that neckline on the downside. Do you see that? See those declining tops? They broke that on heavy volume, buying volume. Now the bottoms, of course, they're not near the bottom, so I don't know. May he, maybe he of the cloven hoof is going to pull out a good one. When are their earnings coming out? April. They've been above their earnings estimates quite a bit, consistently above earnings. It's going to be interesting to see what they pull on this, on this next one for their quarterly earnings. But I'm not, I'm not going near something with, a, with an overvaluation and a beta like that. That's someone else's territory, not mine. Enough of that. Let me show you um, a couple of stupid Excel pet tricks that I haven't shown you yet that have to do with payments, mortgages, car loans, and all that kind of stuff is, let's take one here, make a nice little table of um, uh, loan amount, APR, Some, sometimes you're seeing this APY. Um, uh, compoundings, number of compoundings. Um, what else do I want? Years, uh, payments. What am I forgetting here? Oh, uh, let me put in, before I put in payments, let me put in future value. There should be no future value in a loan unless you have some kicker at the end of the loan you have to pay an extra amount. So the loan amount say that you're going to go with a car. Well, no, let's do a home loan. Let's say you're going to buy a nice $175,000 home at an APR of 6.69% monthly payments. And please follow with your Excel if you can. Years, I... Well, let's make this a 30-year traditional mortgage loan, and there should be no future value in it. And we'll go over here, and now we can do the payments. Now, this one is one I've already shown you here. No, I haven't. That's why I'm doing this. Equals payments. Okay, now the rate is going to be the APR divided by 12. And notice how I try to get everything so that I don't have to put any numbers at all into it. The number of periods would be the years times 12. Now the, oh, I did it again. Let me get this out of here for a second. Do you see what I did? I forgot to put in the negative. I am forever doing that. And let's do the payments again. Try to do that. Number of payments and the present value of the loan is that. Now there's no future value, so we don't have to put in the future value. And the type of loan is ordinary. Now you can put a zero in here, but you don't have to. Oops. Now you can put a comma zero in here, but you don't have to because the default is zero. 
so you don't have to put in that it's an ordinary annuity, payments at the end of the periods. But anyway, your payments are going to be $1,128.08. Let me put that back up on there so you can write that. That's a payment. Now I'm going to switch over here and I'm going to show you the same problem on your financial calculator. And there's a reason for this. Okay, so if I were to look at this on the financial calculator, I said, look at this on the financial calculator. Now let me bring up the original. We're going to do this on the financial calculator, just so you can see that one. Give you a minute to catch that one up. Okay. Apps, finance, good old TVM solver. Would you catch up here? Okay, N. 30 years times 12 per payments per year. Remember, times on the N, and then 6.5. 6.9, divide on the percent, present value is the negative 175,000. And make sure that your FV is zero, your P over Y, C over Y is one, payments at the end, all of those need to be in there. Now on the PMT with your cursor there, alpha, Enter Alpha Solve. $1,128 and right on the button, rounded to two decimal places. Yeah? So does that mean that you're paying $1,100 every month for 30? For 30 long, every month for 30 long years. Pretty, pretty grim, isn't it? Yeah, that's terrible. Uh, it, yeah, that sucks. It, even, it sucks even more when I show you something else here. Okay, here's, the, uh, here's another question. Halfway through the loan, that would be 15 years, right? Or 15 times 12 months. Can we find out what we still owe on the loan? The answer is yes. Now, write down these keystrokes if you wish. I'm gonna do it on the calculator first, and then I'm going to do it on the in Excel. So I'm going to second quit. I'm just going to walk away from this. Now watch. Apps, finance. Now don't go any, uh, go down because you're going to see one, the balance. It's number nine. Now what you're going to do, what you're doing is you're going to tell the calculator Go in and look at what I did in that TVM solver. Now, I want the balance after 15 times 12 months. That's all you have to do. Now, don't forget that you have to tell, you gave it the information in months, so you're gonna want this to do that in months. Close the parenthesis. You still <laughs> $128,000, halfway through the loan. Now remember, you borrowed $175,000. And that's how much you still owe halfway through the loan. That's one of the big problems with loans, home loans, is that you are paying pennies on the balance for the first few years. So if the economy turns down on you, your house will go down in value and we, you will be what we call upside down on the loan. In other words, if the value of your house drops, you'll owe more on it than you have uh, uh, paid, than the equity in the house, I should say. So that sucks. Is there a way we can do this in Excel? Well, there are a couple of ways and uh, admittedly there are a couple of more that you could use. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to come in here. 
Let me put in 15 years, okay? And I'm going to say equals cumulative principle I guess I have to type it in cumulative prince I thought I could just click that and it would do it open the parenthesis the rate 6.69 divided by 12 the number of periods, which in this case would be 15 times 12, wait a minute, that's not true, that's not true. I am not comfortable doing it this way, so I apologize for that. The number of periods would be 30 times 12. and then 30 times 12. Now the start period would be 1, and the end period would be 15. I did? See, I was just testing you there. Like I said, I am not comfortable doing it this way. I just do it on the calculator because this gets into that almost tedious thing. 15, I'll fix it here in a minute. Yes, I, let me do that. I'm, I apologize. Let me back up here. Okay, the number of periods, n periods, 30 times 12, the present value, you're right. My ass. Comma. Start period would be month one, end period would be 15 times 12. Now let's see if I got this right. And I, this, like I said, I just use the calculator because this is such a tedious thing. Instead of B3, oh, you're right. I keep doing that. That's kind of odd. I, I usually don't do that, and I'm doing it here instead of just B3. I wonder what, why it's bitching. Oh, the type of loan, it wants that in there. Zero, yes. I thought it would default, but it doesn't. And it sucks. <laughs> B2, let me try it again. What's the first one? Rate. S divided by 12. And then the number of periods would be 12 times 30. And then the present value would be B1. Yes. Start period is one. Interesting. It doesn't like my start period there. Well, that sucks. One. Eh, I don't know where it's why it's bitching at me. It doesn't like that start period. And then, oh, I see what I did wrong. And then the end period would be 15 times 12. And it does not like what I'm doing there. And I'll bet you it doesn't like that start period, the starting period. I wonder if I put in starts at zero. Nope, doesn't like it. Well, I'm not going to ask that on a quiz or an exam unless I can show you what's wrong with that. I can't figure this one out, cumulative principle. But you can always get it right here with the balance function right there. 
Let me show you one other thing on the calculator. What if you wanted to know how much interest you had paid over the entire life of the loan? Here in the calculator, watch this. Finance, apps finance. You go down to the sum of your interest payments. Now, in order to do this, you have to say, when did you start paying interest? You started paying at month one. When did you stop paying interest? At month 30 times 12. 30 times 12. This is the sum of your interest. Oh, it doesn't like it when I do that on the keyboard. I see. Okay, this is how much cumulative interest you have paid from month one to month 360 on the loan. Watch this one. Holy cow. You've paid $231,107 in interest over the life of the loan. That is spectacular. <laughs> that, in other words, you've paid well more, almost 50, about $55,000 more in interest than you paid in principal over the life of that loan. So the balance and the sum of interest, those are a lot easier, and I'll tell you that, I knew that anyway, on the calculator than they are in Excel. So you might want to make sure you have your calculator handy. But like I said, if I can't figure out what's wrong with my formula for balance, I'm not going to ask you that on an exam in Excel. It's just I'm, I'm just at a loss. What's wrong with my formula? But then again, that's a programmer's mantra. What's wrong with my perfect formula? Anyway, don't get it. That's driving me crazy. But I'll figure it out here eventually. Talk to me. Um, like make the loan amount positive. Make the loan what? The I suppose I could do that. I'm not sure, but. Boy, that sure did. <laughs> well, okay. Okay, between the two of us, we could invent a spacecraft that will explode on the, on the, land, on the launch pad. I, I, I just at a loss. What's wrong? I mean, there's an audit. Something is wrong, and I'm pretty sure it's that period one or period zero that's bitching at me. I just don't get that at all. The start period. Start period. I wonder if it wants a date in there. Well, that would suck if you have to put a date in there because that would make it so that you couldn't do a general setup. But anyway, enough. Let me go get out of here for a second. Um, no, I'm going to leave this up here and just minimize it for the time being. The topic of this lecture is interest rates. And I... I am absolutely out of money, so I can't use an example of money. But let me show you something here. Um, first of all, you recall deep in your past that I, what was it I said interest rates are? What is an interest rate? Do you remember it? <laughs> absolutely. That's okay. This is where we really hit it. Interest rates are the opportunity cost of funds. Interest rates are the opportunity cost of funds. Interest rates are the opportunity cost of funds. An interest rate is a rental rate. 
It's a rental rate. It's like your wage, your wage is the rental rate for you. I pay you $20 an hour, no, $9 an hour. 35. I know my life. <laughs> Fine. God, I hate this generation. You won't take slavery. <laughs> but, okay, but it's still, I'm renting you. You're, you know, it's just like, you know, rent a stud or something. I don't know what it is for you, but, you know. <laughs> but uh, that, and that's what rent uh, interest rates are. Now, you'll hear me sometimes say the price of money, but it's really the rental rate. And if it's a short-term amount of funds, then that would be a rental rate of money. If it's long-term, it would be a rental rate of capital. But... There are so many different interest rates. Well, what is the interest rate today? Well, that, there are lots of interest rates. There is an interest rate on uh, a home loan, an interest rate on a car loan, an interest rate that a corporation would pay on a $50 million bond. There's an interest rate that you get at the bank for putting money into a CD. There are, is no single interest rate. But what is, they all have something in common. They have this substrate, an underlying rate, and on top of that rate are stacked things, factors, if you will. And what's stacked on them are risk factors. So for example, the rate on a home loan is lower than the rate on a credit card. That's because a home loan is less risky to the bank than a credit card is. Well, for one thing, the bank can get the asset back if you don't pay. With a credit card, it doesn't really have a whole lot of recourse, and it costs a lot to take you to court and garnish your wages and all that. So if I write an interest rate as an R, a big R, there is this piece that is sitting underneath all interest rates and then risk factors stack on top of it. This piece underneath is called the risk-free rate. This would be the rate if there were no risk factors involved. Do we ever see a risk-free rate? Actually, we kind of see a shadow of it, but it's more of a theoretical object. But because we have to use it in practice in a lot of financial situations, we need something that is an estimate of it. The closest we can get to the risk-free rate is the yield on a sh very short-term treasury uh, bill. Uh, when the government wants to borrow money, it can borrow with very short-term, intermediate-term, long-term. But if the government is borrowing money for a very short period of time, then that is pretty much risk-free because the government is not going to default on its debt obligations. Once in a while, you hear these conspiracy theorists saying, the government's going to default on its loan. No, it's not. It doesn't default. The government won't default for a few reasons. One is, if the government needs money to pay off its debts, well, it can always simply you know, print money. It can just print the money, and that's what it usually does. To pay off a loan, it just prints money and gives it, pays off the loan with it. If it, politically very difficult in the, in, in the United States in the current times, it can raise, but it could raise taxes to generate the, cap, the funds to pay off its loans. And if all else fails, we can just make up some excuse and attack another country and liquidate its assets, which we've done uh, on various occasions, you know, as, and say that we're giving freedom to those people. But we won't default. So in other words, that major risk factor, default, isn't there. And if it's short-term, another risk factor, time, isn't there. And one more risk factor, which is liquidity, 
difficulty to get rid of it uh, if you have one of those uh, dead instruments. That's not there. So this is as close, and we can get the T-bill rates. And I'll show you right now. Let me, and I was going to pull this up, and I'm, I'll show you here. Uh, let me go to Google. Uh, Treasury yield curve. Now this is a site, I'll put this as a link up in my scrolling marquee on the sidebar of my podcasting site. Let me show you this. Okay, par yield curve. Now let me, uh, this is right now, if I were to look at the risk-free rate, I would probably want to estimate, these are all annualized, so they're all in a, in a year accounting. And I'll come back to this, but if you look at it right now, if I were to look at a one-year treasury bill, what it's yielding, that would be our proxy, P-R-O-X-Y, of the risk-free rate, because it's so close to being risk-free, that's what we use. And as you can see, this thing has been moving upward. See it? The Federal Reserve crushing the money supply. Supply of money goes down. Price of money, interest rates go up. That's what it's been doing. And so this is about right now, it looks like it's at about 5.00%. That might be the number that I put in if I use R sub F risk-free rate in an actual formula to calculate something. It's there. Now, as you can see, let me take you back here. As a matter of fact, let me take you back through, look at this, 2022. You can see the Fed's activity. See how it was, look how low that risk-free rate was just a year ago at the beginning of 2022. You see that that, now remember what it is now, it's 5%. And back a year ago, at the beginning of 2022, it was only 0.4%. So in other words, that would mean that it has gone up by 0.4. Yeah, it's, going, it's gone up almost more, 25 times what it was. It, that's the effect of the Federal Reserve crushing the money supply to squeeze out the inflation. And that's what was freaking a lot of people out. We're going to go into a recession. Look at that. It just kept going up and up and up, skyrocketing. Now, if you look at that, where it was compared to where it is now, let me look at something real quick here. You can see that the Fed... Be, really began its move in early January of 2022. You see that? You see, at first, it, at the beginning of the year, it was letting it just kind of drift. And then it began to apply the squeeze, crushing the money supply, slowly, kind of slowly, but man, just progressively worse and worse and worse. That's why you could get a home loan for under 4% at the beginning of 2022, and now you're going to pay close to 7%, if not more than that, simply because that substrate, that one under all interest rates that R sub F was, doing, uh, was, was climbing. Just, add, just for a little bit of context, if you go back to 2020, You can see that the, it was actually a little higher in 2020. But then, do you see how it began to fall late in 2020? Look at that. It came down. <laughs> That's about as, I mean, it, you can't, well, I guess you can. A 0% risk-free rate is about as impossible. But look how low it was in the last part of 2020. A lot of people would say that was political influence because we were coming into the election and the incumbent 
wanted those interest rates down and was putting unusual pressure on the Fed to close that interest rate down to get it so that it, because lower interest rates would make the economy just boom and all that. And so the Fed is technically not supposed to be influenced by politics, but it was definitely being influenced in the, uh, you can see it, look at that. I mean, that's just insane how low the risk-free rate got, which would have made all interest rates low, make people happy. So, I mean, the numbers are not lying to you here. These are, these are very obviously, the interest rate was being brought down, and it's not coincidence that it was during an election year that it was, they were being brought down. That's just the reality of it. And now we are in this situation where if we look at 2000 year to date, 2023, there you go. Spectacularly high risk-free rate, which is making all interest rates spectacularly high. This is just kind of, and of course, 2023 is critical if you're thinking about elections because we're between elections. The Fed is not getting any pressure at all, so it's going to move as fast as it can to get those interest rates up there, squeeze out the inflation, and then get things back to normal. Take you on a journey. In, you might have heard this somewhere in your, in your physics in high school or in chemistry in high school or in some of your more gen ed classes, science classes here. But there are oftentimes things that we see the larger object or we know a lot about the larger object, but we know that there's something inside of it that we cannot see, but we know it's there. This is true, this was true for more than a, a several centuries in chemistry. We knew that these things like water and uh, stuff like that were made up of atoms connected together in molecules. We could not see them. We knew they were there, at least as a model. We could model a lot of things by saying this and this go together and they're connected, but we couldn't see them. And then finally, we got to the point where, yeah, we can kind of see molecules now. As a matter of fact, that was the whole thing with some of the more complicated molecules like DNA. It took us forever to figure out what that thing looked like. We couldn't see it. We could model it, but we couldn't see it. Well, and finally, we figured out it's a double helix. Still couldn't see it. And then, kind of just a little before my time, the first electron microscope got a photograph, just barely catching one side of a real DNA. And sure enough, it was a double helix. Very cool. Quantum physics, we know what protons, electrons, and all those, we can even see them. But inside, we know that there's an internal structure. And we can't see that worth crap. It's made up of things called quarks. And boy, those are going to be hard to ever get a view of. But the same is true in our field. Risk-free rate has two pieces in it. We know they're there. We cannot see them directly, but we know damn well they are in there. I'll show you. There are two of them. There's one called the real rate. This is the one that's being driven by supply and demand of money. The real rate is being more money, the real rate would go down. Less money, the real rate would go up. But there's another piece in here too that we can't pull apart. We can't pull these apart. We're, we're, getting, we're, we're good at estimating what each of these is. And I draw this one we usually designate this as a pi with a little superscript e. Now this r sub real, that's the real interest rate. That's the one that's driven by the supply and demand dynamics of money. The real interest rate, r sub real. Now this one 
is the expected inflation premium. And that's important, that first word. Inflation premium. Expected inflation. Premium. It's a premium. It's an extra. We actually don't give a rat's ass about inflation. We don't. Financial markets aren't driven by what inflation is. They're driven by the expectation of it. And that is a problem. Let me explain it to you this way. I'll give it to you this way. Okay, you, sir. I've decided that I'm going to hire you. And 40-hour week, regular job, salary. And I'm going to pay you $100 a week. I'm a giver. $100 a week. Okay? So, after a year, you've been working, I call you in for your review. And I, well, you've been doing pretty darn well here. And I see that inflation's been running at about 2%. So I'm going to give you a 2% two, uh, raise, $102, and I'll get back to work. Well, okay. So the next year you come in, and, well, you're still doing good. And, I see that inflation is 4%, was 4% this last year, so I'm going to give you a raise of 4%. There's your damn raise, and I'll get back to work. Lazy ass. Okay? Then you come in the next year, and uh, you're still doing good, and I see inflation has gone up to 6%, went up to 6% last year, so I'm going to give you a 6% increase. And at this point, you say, stop right there, you fat, greedy, capitalist pig. Wait, what? What's wrong with what I'm doing? Yeah? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's even worse than that. I am giving him what has already eroded. What would he, what would I, what should I do? If it's gone from two, four to six, what should I raise him by? Eight, yes, right? Because expectation is driving markets. When I'm making a loan to you, madam, do you really think that I'm going to look at what inflation was, or am I going to look at what I have to, I'm thinking, expecting it to be over the next 30 years of that loan? I'm going to drive my thinking, as do, as do labor markets, as do financial markets. We all think in terms of the expectation of what is going to happen. Because we don't live in that world. You don't live for the next year in the world where inflation was 4%. You'll live in the world, or 6%, you'll live in the world of what it will be. And so that's why we have in interest rates, there's no inflation premium. There is an expected inflation premium driven by what we all think, the consensus of where it's going to go. And this is a bear. You see, one of the problems with the Federal Reserve clamping down on the money supply, well, that'll solve inflation. Everyone get rid of their inflation premium. Everyone's going to say no, because we still expect it to be bad. So when you cut the money supply, yeah, that's going to drive up the real rate, but we're not cutting the expected inflation premium until we see that it worked. This was an absolute disaster in the 1970s. Well, starting a little before that. Here's how it goes. Sometimes I kind of go into a story mode, but make sure you write down what I'm saying here. You see, because when we were in the 1950s, we had, a, a later 50s, we had a moderate conservative Republican, considered the last of the great moderate conservatives, Dwight Eisenhower. And he, did, he was one of those, no, I'm not going to fund all these high fancy projects for the left, and I'm not going to f give tax cuts to the right-wingers. Everything will just stay on a level course, and the Federal Reserve will create enough money to grease a growing economy, period. Well, that was, a, and so, of course, the economy grew, but it wasn't anything spectacular. And, of course, that, he left office in 1960. Uh, he didn't run for re-election. 
His vice president, a hard conservative named Richard Nixon, ran against a brash World War II kind of hero, war veteran, Irish Catholic, good-looking. I mean, he was just everything the modern guy should be. He knew, this, he knew Sinatra. He knew all those fancy people. Rumors that he'd been kind of had a few dalliances with this model actress named Marilyn. Uh, but he got up there on stage. They had a debate. I remember it so vividly. Uh, black and white, live debate. I mean, it was just... Uh, Nixon was on this side, this little hunched-over guy, and here was this tall Jack Kennedy. And Kennedy already knew what show business was. He stood there in the lights. They were glaring lights and just to try to keep the cameras from blacking out. And Nixon kind of hunched over, the poor son of a bitch, the shot, lights shone right down, I and mean, he looked like some kind of ghoul. But... Um, Kennedy started, Kennedy won, of course, and it was called the era of Camelot because everything was so cool. Jackie, his wife, she took everyone on a tour of the White House. Who had ever heard of that? Showing the latest, she always wore the latest fashions from Paris and places like that. And Kennedy was one of those guys forward looking. He said, we defeated two horrible monsters, the Japanese Imperial Army in, uh, Asia and the filthy Nazis over in uh, Europe, we can do anything. We are the Americans. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And he started out. He got in a speech, I think it was in 61, he said, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade. Of course, all of the physicists and engineers, yeah, right, you're kidding. Oh, you're not kidding? Are you nuts? Well, we did it, because Jack wanted it. And then he took on a war on poverty. If we could beat wars against other monsters, we could beat poverty. And then he hated communists. I mean, God, he hated them. And so he started sending some advisors to this miserable backwater in the middle of nowhere that even the French were running away from. It was called Vietnam. And so all this money being spent. But... The top tax rate was 70% on the rich people. On their last dollar, they earned 70%. And he had no tolerance for cries about tax cuts. Not a thing. And so it was an amazing time. Spend money, tax hard, and try to solve the problems of the 20th century. Once and for all. So we could go into the next century in good shape, in great shape. Well, unfortunately, Camelot came to an end in Dallas in November of uh, 63, and his vice president came in, an old blue dog Democrat, Lyndon Baines Johnson, probably had white sheets hanging in his closet, one of those conservatives, Texas vicious as hell, former senator, and Kennedy had had him on the ticket to balance it regionally, you know, geographically, I should say, but everyone was relieved, all the conservatives in the South, Republican and Democrat, thank God we got that Irish Catholic liberal out. Well, strangely enough, Lyndon Johnson, one of the things that he did, Kennedy had been pushing for something called a Civil Rights Act. Fortunately for the conservatives, he was killed before that was passed, and everyone was relieved, all the conservatives, because Lyndon Johnson wasn't going to do any of that nonsense. Well, he did. He brought in all of his blue dog Democrat cronies who were senators and representatives. And he laid it out for them. You're going to do this, and I'm going to make sure you do this. And they knew Johnson would do whatever he had to because Jack wanted it. Story goes that when Lyndon Johnson was running for his Senate seat, he told his um, campaign manager, I want you to put out a uh, rumor about my opponent. And uh, he said, I want you to put out the rumor that my opponent is a pig fucker. Well, Lyndon, uh, 
Jason ain't no pig fire. His wife is a little chunky, but ah, shut up. I told you, I don't want to know the truth. I want to make him deny the lie. You understand? That was Johnson. And so Johnson got the Civil Rights Act passed. He put us in the position with the Mercury uh, program, and then we would go to the Gemini, and then do the Apollo to get us to the moon. And he poured the troops and the iron onto Vietnam to, because Jack wanted it, you see. But that cost a lot of money, god-awful amounts of money. But we still had high taxes, but eventually the Fed was having to print money faster because it was getting a little bit dodgy. So, eh, no inflation at first because markets didn't see the inflation, didn't see the process that would cause the inflation. By the time we got to the Nixon administration, he tried to keep, keep a pretty level line. The idea that he was some right-wing conservative is kind of a myth. He was, it was he who sought to it, signed the Environmental Protection Act. It was he who did some, put the most liberal Supreme Court justices in American history. We've never seen any like that. That was Nixon. But things got out of hand for him. We got into a, the Arabs got really pissed off at us because they had attacked Israel and Israel whipped their asses as usual in the Yom Kippur War. So the Arabs said, oh, you don't seem to understand. You want our oil, but you want to support our enemy. So they turned off the oil, the OPEC oil embargo. And that caused prices of oil to go through the roof. The economy started to crater and the Fed started to print money. And it never stopped. When Nixon resigned, Ford took over. Ford said, we will whip inflation now. That was how he wanted it. He put, got buttons printed. Whip inflation now. Win. Unfortunately, of course, the Fed was still printing money, hand over fist, because expected inflation was beginning to go like this. So R sub F was going up. So as the Fed printed money, it was doing it to get R sub real to go down to keep the economy from cratering. It went in after Ford was beaten by Jimmy Carter in 1976. Carter was, came off as kind of an, uh, he was a peanut farmer for God's sake. But he, but he was also a nuclear physicist and he knew what was really the problem. But at first, having his religious background, he called it the moral equivalent of war. Well, unfortunately, that has the acronym MEOW. But, so, but Carter, wasn't, Carter knew what had to be done. He appointed a Federal Reserve chairman named Paul Volcker. Volcker was six foot four, smoked filthy, stinking big cigars, and he didn't care who he pissed off. He crushed the money supply like a mofo. And of course, what happened was that as he crushed the money supply, the real rate went up into the stratosphere. But expected inflation didn't go down because we'd heard this before. Yeah, yeah, you're going to crush the money supply, la-di-da. The expected inflation premium stuck. And so you had interest rates, the risk-free rate, never mind all this out here, the risk-free rate was going through the stratosphere. Mortgage rates of 20, 25%. And of course, Carter was kicked out of office in 1980 election by a uh, former governor of California and Western uh, cowboy actor named Ronald Reagan. And fortunately, Volcker was still there because he, he had a term of appointment. So he held it long enough that the expected inflation premium began to drain out because the market said, oh, the Fed is serious. They, they're not just saying it. So finally, the expected inflation premium began to drain out, and then Volcker could begin to let up on the, uh, you know, make the money, print money again at a normal rate. And, and that, with a tax cut in 81, the economy did pretty well for the next, you know, almost like seven years or so, it did pretty darn well seven, eight years, something like that. 
But anyway, that's the story of how the Fed interacts with the markets and expected inflation is a bear because you can clamp down on the money supply and that'll drive up the real rate, but the expected inflation premium doesn't go anywhere down. And that's what you're seeing happening right now. The Fed is in the process of convincing the markets that it's dead serious. So they are clamping down the money supply, which is driving the real rate up. And ultimately, the markets will begin to back off the expected inflation premium. The problem is that they haven't quite done it yet. And so that's why we're seeing interest rates as high as they are. The real rate is high because the money supply is being crushed, lower supply, higher price of money, but the expected inflation premium is still there and it's not letting up yet. And you know this, you can see this in prices at the store. The prices are still going up because producers, you know, I'm a business person. I'm not going to start, I'm still going to keep pushing up my prices until I've got good reason to believe that everyone else is going to stop pushing up their prices. That's just the reality of it. So we've got to wait a while for the markets to react, to come back down. Now I'll go through the story again about the, the, the story of the interest rates, but do keep in mind that history does matter to what has happened and why we have what we have right now. And it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a back and forth story. The politics of it kind of takes a back seat to the mentality of the market itself in these regards uh, and what's going to happen. Now let me take you through the rest of this really quickly. Now, there, this is risk-free. This is the risk-free part. This is the substrate. All interest rates are built on this. But why are interest rates different? That is this risk premium. It has three pieces to it. And the, some in interest rates, each interest rate has its own little combination of the three. Now the combination, the first one, is kind of obvious, and I already mentioned it, the default premium, R sub default, or R sub D. This is an extra bit of scratch in the interest rate in case you don't pay. So that's why uh, the default premium on a home loan is relatively small because the lender can has a physical asset that it can take if you don't pay. It's, so it's got a, a, an asset backing to it. Now a car loan will usually be a little higher on the interest rate because yes, the uh, lender can take the car back, but remember what happens when a car drives off the lot, it loses some of its value right away. That's, that's why you'll still have uh, some default premium in there because there is a possibility, there is a likelihood that you'll lose some money uh, if the uh, borrower defaults. So the R sub D can be all over the place. Like in a credit card, the primary reason that a credit card has such a high interest rate is because the default premium is so high. There are way too many people who default on their credit card. Uh, I haven't really defaulted on them. I'm just kind of putting off paying them, you know. But uh, the, the reality is that that's going to be a high interest rate. Now, with corporations, when we start talking about bonds, corporations have, sometimes they issue bonds that are backed by physical assets of the corporation. We call those mortgage bonds. But sometimes corporations have loans that aren't backed by anything. Those are called debentures. And then... You have these tiers of loans, like the highest, the loans that get paid for back first, then if there's money left over, the loans that get paid back after that. So you can see all kinds of bond interest rates. Now, there's another, next one is the maturity premium. This is a an extra amount of interest 
as the loan gets, has more time. It's some extra interest if the loan has more time on it. Like for example, if you look at in mortgage rates, if you see a 30-year loan, it tends to have a higher interest rate than a 25-year loan, and that one has a higher interest rate than if you have a 20-year loan. I mean, I was floored. I talked to a car dealer. I said, well, you know, let's talk about loans here. And he said, well, we've got a three-year car loan, new car loan, that is carrying an APR of 4.89%. But if you want to, I said, well, what about five-year? He said, well, that's 5.99. I said, well, how about a six-year? And he said, that's 6.19. It's, there's a higher interest rate the longer the term of the loan. And I said, okay, well, I went and did a real fast calculation. Yeah, that's a great interest rate on a three-year loan, but it's three years, so my payments would have been like $807 a month. So, you know, I politely said, well, let's kiss my ass on that. Let's look at the, the five-year. They're still high. See, there's, that's just what happens, though. And I'll explain more about that. It's actually a physics principle that the, the longer the life of the loan, the higher the interest rate is. Because over, the, over a longer period of time, interest rates have more time to do funky things. If you have an interest rate for one year, then the interest rate environment can't bounce around as much as if you have an interest rate for 30 years. Over 30 years, God knows what interest rates will do. And that's why that maturity premium is higher the longer the life of the loan. And then there's one last one here. This one's called the illiquidity premium. Now, I used to call it the liquidity premium, but I think the book calls it the illiquidity premium. Some kinds of loans... Well, let me make sure you know this. I know some of you probably do, but a lot of you don't. If you go to a bank for a mortgage loan, the bank won't have that loan for more than a couple of hours to a day before it packages it up with its other loans and sells it to a secondary mortgage market. You see, banks don't keep loans like that. That's not their business. They'll service the loan. You'll think, oh, I make my payments to the bank, so yeah, the bank has, no, they don't. They merely collect a little fee for collecting the payments. That loan is moved out to these insanely huge international mortgage markets, secondary mortgage markets. They have names like Ginnie Mae and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So mortgage loans are highly liquid the bank can get rid of it fast because it doesn't want to keep it. However, car loans, the bank has to keep those. There isn't a market like that. They, once they got that loan, they're stuck with it. So they're going to want a little more scratch because they have to keep something that they might not want to keep. The same would be true on an IOU. If, you have, if I give you an IOU, you can't sell it to someone else because they're going to say, why would I buy a loan? Why would I buy this? That fat boy doesn't pay anything. And they're right. But if it's some fancy-ass guy like this, and he's giving you an IOU on a gold filigreed piece of toilet paper, yeah, you can sell that to anyone. Oh, yeah, he's a very good guy. I've seen him on TikTok. Boy, is he a stud. Uh, so, you see, you could get rid of it faster, so there's not that you're stuck with it premium. I'll go into this in a little more detail on Wednesday, but that's all I have for you today. I thank you.